Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. So glad you could join me. This is going to be an exciting show, especially for me, because we're talking about something that that everybody should know about, and very few do. I have Mark Gaffney with me, and he's written a book called uh, Deep History uh, and the Ages of Man, and it has some information in it that we all should have been taught in school and and weren't and it's important that you understand this because it changes your outlook on the earth and our place on it i'm going to give you a little bit from the cover of the book did human civilization begin five or six thousand years ago as we're told with sumer and egypt or is there more to the story what was the actual purpose of stonehenge and why is the great pyramid aligned to true north is it possible that advanced civilizations predated the modern era by tens of thousands of years. Hear that, tens of thousands of years. If so, what happened to them? Today, academia and Egyptology remain hamstrung by limiting beliefs, false assumptions, and shallow readings of ancient texts. Mark Gaffney, his book, represents compelling new evidence to support to support. Charles Hapgood's theory of crustal displacement, first introduced in the 1950s. Deep History and the Ages of Man introduces a new and exciting Earth climate model that will challenge everything you thought you knew about ancient history and about global warming and about what's going on with us. And just it, it just blows away just everything that, that the history books are teaching these days. And it's really important that you listen to this material and and buy the book because it's a fascinating read and it, it gives you so much more than we're going to be able to do tonight, but it's so worth reading. So welcome to the show, Mark. I'm very happy to be with you, Barbara. 
I'm, My pleasure. I'm delighted to delighted to have you here. And you know, in in reading your book, I recognized Darwin, and I you know I, I knew about you know his Voyage of the Beagle and and a lot of some of what he did, but I have to admit that the name of of Charles Hathgood is not one that I have run run into very often. You want to explain a little bit about what he is and what his theory, which I believe is no longer a theory, is? Right. Well, he was a visionary, uh, and uh, he had worked in during World War II. He was part of the uh, Office of Strategic Services that later became the CIA. After the war, he taught uh, classes, I think, at a, a community college in uh, uh, New Hampshire, or maybe it was northern Massachusetts, I'm not sure which, uh, Springfield College there. And he, uh, for many years, taught about uh, the history of science. And he got his students interested in some of his own ideas. Uh, one of them was this crustal displacement issue. And they were also exploring the Piri Reis maps, some of these ancient maps, and I think Hapgood did uh, some very important work in a number of areas, and that was another book he did. We might not get into talking about that tonight, but uh, it also is you know, pertinent to the issue of crustal displacement, which was his main contribution. And he did two books on this, the first one in 1958, uh, Earth Shifting Crust, and he had been collaborating with Albert Einstein on this theory and uh, call it a hypothesis at that point. And Einstein was just intrigued, and the first time he he heard about this and read some of uh, Hapgood's uh, letters on this, he was excited. He became very excited because uh, it was so simple, so clear, and, you know, it made so much sense to Einstein. And then, uh, well, it, as, go ahead. No, it, it does make sense. That's what blows me away. It It makes such <clears throat> great sense. Yeah. And it's supported by so many different methods. I don't understand why it's not taught. In his time, uh, Hapgood did not have access, did not have the Internet. You know, he did not have Google Earth Pro and these really high-powered mapping uh, uh, software programs we have now. And uh, so we've been able to find out a lot more. In his second book, he continued to learn uh, and he did a second book in 1970, and he, his, his ideas changed so much, they evolved so far that he decided to change the title instead of a, a, a second edition. He had a new title, which was uh, The Path of the Pole. And he gave up on, <clears throat> excuse me, gave up on one of his ideas that, that the ice buildup at the poles might have, might be create such a mass, enough mass that uh, it could actually cause the Earth to tip, you know, and this all this mass would would through centrifugal force would move, shift the outer crust toward the toward the equator. But uh, there was not enough ice buildup to to explain that, so he sir, he gave up on that idea. But he continued. He never gave up on the idea of crustal displacement because the evidence just continued to build up. Well, and that's I've, what I've I present in my book. I present new evidence in my book. Oh, you, you, your evidence, I don't see how anybody can argue with it. Now, I've read in lots of places that the, pole, that, that the, the poles wobble, but, but um, the, the, the actual fact that, that 
they shift makes so much greater sense. And my, my, I, one of the burning questions I have, and I'm, there's probably no answer to it, but you, you have identified five different locations of where the poles have been over about 120,000 years. And I'm wondering, do we wait for a comet to hit us to create a, a shift, or is there something else that can create one of these massive shifts? And the other part of it is, does the shift take place all at once, or is it something that happens slowly? Well, these are interesting questions. Uh, let me let me uh, tackle that last question first. Um, <clears throat> Hapgood thought initially that this process of displacement of the crust would be a slow process. It could take place over many years. Uh-huh. However, uh, as his his thinking evolved, he became less certain of that and became was actually you know un, unclear about that uh, later on in his 1970 book. It, uh, and I believe that uh, we feel today, I feel, and I, and I believe uh, Jim McCanny also feels, he's a scientist that I collaborated with um, for part of this book, that this process actually takes place in a catastrophic manner within like 24 hours, one to two days. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's well, a, it's a, it is a cataclysm when it happens. Okay, and I think people have to understand when one of these shifts takes place, it moves it moves areas depending on where the the hit has been taken up to what a thousand miles well let me let me clarify that um, I agree with McCanny. Uh, you know there are other there are up a couple of other mechanisms people have proposed for how this happens and what causes it. Uh-huh. But I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any force <clears throat> within the Earth capable of doing this, and I think it requires a force from outside the Earth, like a passing comet. And I don't mean an impact. I don't think these events are caused by impacts, but probably by a close encounter. Now, those are much more common than impacts. So yeah, it wouldn't okay. take a comet impact. It would take a planet-sized comet coming fairly close to the Earth within. I don't know, maybe within a million miles perhaps or less, perhaps a half million miles, something like that. We don't really know but because uh, we haven't – this has not happened in recorded history. <clears throat> so we are piecing this together, you know, based on evidence from the distant past, which is not always, you know, obvious. It's not always clear. So as we go back in time, the evidence gets more and more confused, you know, so – uh, because events happen that cover up, you know, other events, and so things get concealed and, and, and altered. So, uh, you know, we're piecing this together. Well, I mean, I understand that. And, and the fact that, you know, you're going back 120, 130,000 years, it just, to me, the, the Earth is so old, this kind of a repetition of sorts must have happened before, but but like you said, um, the 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 way you are verifying the last five shifts are with are with elements that are that are that we can touch, that we can see, that we can validate now with the the mollusk beds, the um, the layers of bones in in some of the caves in Britain, 
And um, what was the third? Uh, oh, the the um, the the way that the, the spiritual uh, temples and things were directed at True North. You know, when when you got all of the measurements, there were so, so many of them that were not true north they were in in different places where the different pole shifts had had taken pl- had been so you kind of were able to give a time frame as to when they were built or the uh, you know a, a, an estimate so to speak because i've always been bothered by the fact that people have said everything happened in the last 6000 years which doesn't make sense to me so Right. You cover that. You, no you stretch it out. That makes no sense. <clears throat> right. Well, um, let me talk about the timeline because uh, you brought okay. that up. Um, yeah, I think this discovery of uh, the bone caves in England has made a major, has been a major contributing factor here to helping us understand the timeline. Um, now, uh, I want to give credit here first, though, to Mark Carlotto. He's another researcher, and he's been on your show, you said, several times. Oh, yeah. We, we're, we're like working in a very similar uh, area, and we've, you know, kind of gone back and forth and bounced ideas back and forth. But Carlotto uh, was ahead of me uh, using the uh, Google Earth Pro to make these, uh, to determine the archaeological alignments of these of pyramids and, and temples and so on, he has a, a database now of around 500 archaeological sites, many of which are aligned to one or another of these five or four previous uh, North Pole positions. So uh-huh. we know about five pole positions, including, including the current pole, four other ones that happened earlier. And we have archaeological alignments pointing to these pole positions with incredible accuracy in some cases. I mean, it's just spot on in some cases. Now, some of them are less accurate, you know, but, but when they're on, I mean, they are on, and it's, just, it's astounding, really. And uh, so we have that – that's how he identified the, the locations. But what is really interesting is that my contribution, I think, has been recognizing the importance – of the fossil uh, fossils found in these caves in England, and we got over 20 of them. I call them the Bone Caves of England. And the first one that was discovered was around 1822. Uh, and, yeah, research started at that time and has continued ever since. So we have over 200 years of research now in these bone caves. And there was a, there was a key paper published a summary paper published in 2001 that I discuss in my book. And in fact, it's so important. I regard it as so important that I got permission. I acquired the rights to reprint that paper as an appendix to my book. So the readers can get the benefit of it because these uh, authors, uh, it was uh, two guys that did this paper. They uh, had identified five stratigraphic layers uh, they went through, they, they sifted through all the research done over those 200 years and, and boiled it down, and they, they, and they identified five stratigraphic layers. And I'll tell you what, I was just blown away when I realized that each one of those stratigraphic layers correlates with one of the pole positions. So we have five stratigraphic layers and five pole positions, 
and they they correlate like hand like a hand in a glove. So we have what we have here is a holographic record in the bone caves of England, dating back to a hundred, maybe a hundred and thirty thousand years ago, and. Uh, well, it's amazing. It's really mind-boggling the way this lines up. It just lines up beautifully. With the with the different layers, I mean, they're going into a cave and they're digging stuff up, layer by layer by layer by layer. How do they determine where one layer stops and the other layer starts? Okay, I got I have to tell you, I'm not a paleontologist and I'm not an archaeologist, so I I don't have personal experience doing this, but. Um, it took them a long time to figure this out, you know, where one stopped and another began. <clears throat> there was a lot of comparative work, you know, back and forth with the different caves. Yeah. <clears throat> and some of the caves had, like, all the layers maybe. Other caves only had one or two of the layers. So they had to piece this together. And the deepest layer uh, dates back to 125 to 130,000 years ago. And in that deepest layer... They found fossils of um, uh, these hippos, hippopotamus, yeah. that were living in England at that time, flourishing in the Thames River and in sites all the way up to central England. Uh, I think the most northerly one was uh, that cave of, what was the name of that cave? Uh, I have to check the, let me check the uh, contents here. Yorkshire, yeah. There was a cave in Yorkshire in central England where that was the first discovery made. And uh, these hippos, you know, require, and this is the mind-boggling thing, the hippos require subtropical conditions. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so I we think have one all thing these, that... these other animals also at that time that, re- that were in the, uh, that required a subtropical uh, ecosystem. I think one thing that, that, people don't don't actually remember to take into consideration is that these different time frames um the 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 level of the oceans was higher or and or lower so that there were land bridges so that you know if you wanted to walk you could probably walk um all over the place and and, and there weren't the 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 oceans and the lakes that there are today and i think that's one of the things that that blew me away because you had, you had uh, graphics of you know where the water lines basically were, and it's something I hadn't taken into consideration that that the reason that we don't have a lot of records or ways of proving stuff is because a lot of the stuff is now underwater. That's right, and uh, there, I'm sure there are a lot of. In fact, I suspect that there are archaeological sites underwater that could be aligned with pole positions that even predate the ones we know about. There may have been earlier ones. I would so love this that. is one of the reasons why it's so exciting that people get out there and do that, uh, this, visit these areas that have not been studied. Well, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things, I, it, the, different, the different animals that were found in different places you know, had it had to mean that, that this was in a more tropical or a, a better climate than it is today, and you know, with the poles, you know, they 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 go from I don't know from Arctic to Hudson Bay to to um, 
the Norway and then Greenland and then the Bering Sea. And and so that's that's a lot of that's a lot of land or water to cover. Those are big shifts in in where the equator was and you know where 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 all of us kind of were. So that so that it it makes a big difference in um <clears throat> in how humanity dealt with it, how they lived through it or because of it or went or migrated further south. It feels like South America has that ever been in in a, a polar region? Good question. Uh, I think we have uh, on record some of these um, crustal displacements have been oh more than two thousand miles. Yeah. That's a lot of degrees of latitude. So you uh, let's talk about the uh, one in the Bering Sea. You mentioned the Bering Sea. Now, that yeah. lines up with uh, positions, uh, archaeological sites in Peru that uh, Carlotto identified. <laughs> also, yeah. there are sites in Greece, uh, the tomb of Agamemnon, and also one at Petra, the, uh, the uh, temple of the winged lions there, that all line up spot on with this pole position in the Bering Sea. Now, it turns out that this is this this is the deepest layer of the bone caves. Yeah. So this is the time when there were hippos in England, and see, we can measure the we can determine what the uh, latitude would have been of England with this incredible Google Earth Pro uh, software program we have now. So all you do is we go to that uh, pole position in the Bering Sea and we we calculate what the latitude would have been for England. Uh, in uh, Yorkshire or in uh, along the Thames River, and it would have been at 20 to 25 degrees uh, latitude, which would put it in a subtropical region where North Africa is. So we're getting wow. you know the data all fits together very very beautifully, and the uh, we have a we have fossils from that layer uh, uh, that have been uh, isotopically dated using the uranium method that date those hippo bones to 121,000 years ago. So there you go. Wow. I mean, the, this is the beauty of this system, this method. Uh, these bone caves give us a way to date these pole positions. And we have similar dates. You know, we have other dates that have been uh, calculated for other fossils that were uh, found and recovered from the other layers. So it all fits together, and the sequence is, you know, is beautiful. So it works. Oh yeah, no doubt about that. <clears throat> but there were other methods, you know, that have been used to date, and I think this is what 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 ties it all up for me. That you have the bones, and then you have the the ice core samples, which fascinate me. Um, right. I, I you know the the, the ice cores uh, samples do do give you you know a change of seasons and a change of you know, it shows that it was either much warmer or much colder, and um, and that goes back thousands of years. And then the first one that you talked about that so impressed me were the mollusk shells. Um, right, right, because mollusks are very temperature sensitive, and they have to have a very specific temperature to live. And they are able to spread, you know, they can ride the currents when they're in the larval stage. So they can move around um, 
from one place to another to uh, if the environment changes, they can move to their preferred habitat niche. And this is the evidence that I found in uh, that no one had noticed. It's right there in black and white, uh, published by Charles Darwin in his book about the geology of South America. And I think it was published in 1846 or so. And he had a whole data set there of mollusk shells uh, that were found in uh, along the coast of South America, indicating that the that the species had once lived in down in along the coast of Chile, but they had relocated up to the uh, Peru region around the equator. And wow. these were temperatures; these were species that required a temperature. And, you know, and the waters off Chile at that time were cold. They needed warmer water, and so why were they, you know, why were they at one time found off the coast of Chile, along the coast of Chile there, because evidently the waters had one time been much, much warmer. How do you explain that? Well, the change is about 2,000 miles, uh, and uh, the only way you can explain it is the crust of the earth moved. And I think wow. that Darwin came right up against this, but he just couldn't quite make the leap. You know, it was just a little too far. He was kind of locked into his own scientific assumptions, could not well, make a leap the, that the crust of the earth could have moved that far like that. Consider the time. I mean, archaeologists, yeah. you know, during right. that time w- wouldn't have swallowed it. But not for a minute. He would have been... Um, he would have been kind of drummed out of the core, so to speak, I would think. Well, uh, because... we must remember that uh, George Cuvier was a catastrophist, and he there were that was really uh, very. It was widely believed at that time that these cataclysms had 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 occurred before and explained the great flood and so on. And his student there, uh, Alcide de Bigny, I can't I'm not I can't pronounce the French name, but he was had been in, in fact, had preceded Darwin to South America and had, had been working there along the coast and uh, with another collector. And they had gathered some of this data. I believe uh, they passed it to Darwin. Darwin didn't make, didn't uh, gather this data himself, but he published the data because he was impressed with it. But he couldn't explain it. You know, and so uh, Darwin was under the influence of Lyle, who was a uniformitarian, you know, who think that who believed that changes happen very slowly, gradually. Well, as something happens, I mean, there were um, there there were animals that were discovered that you know had flowers in their mouths, so. it, I know at one point right. they had, they were, they, it was a woolly mammoth, I think, that, that they found that uh, the the uh, internal organs were warm enough to even if it was frozen for them to keep everything alive in the, in the stomach <laughs> for a couple of weeks, I think. Well, the you're right. You're talking about the mammoths that were flash frozen up in northern Siberia. Yeah. And we know they were flash frozen because um, those 
the food, the the uh, the, the petals, the uh, flowers that the mammoths had eaten that were in their mouths and in their stomach would have decomposed, and there would have you know they would have rotted uh, if it had been a gradual freezing, you know, simply through a uh, like a storm or a uh, uh, you know, a sudden turn in the weather. It was more than that. It had to be much more than that because these animals are huge. I mean, these these mammoths were larger than elephants. You know, some of them, some of the different mammoth species were <clears throat> three times the size of elephants. Well, now what's so it? Now, the petals, the... you know, the, those those remains that were in perfect condition which tells us they did not denature, did not break down at all. So yeah. the freezing must have been inst- almost inst- instantaneous. Well, if you moved me a 1,000 miles north, I'd freeze pretty quick too. Um, and I'm in Nashville. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, and, and that the, the woolly mammoths that were found in that, on that island off the coast of Siberia, that was a huge find of mammoth bones there. Um, right. You, you wonder, was, was how, why were so many in such a small place, I guess is what I'm looking for. Well, I think you have to conclude that uh, we know that the, the tundra, the, well, when we have tundra today, it wasn't tundra then, it was a uh, step. It was a mammoth step. Uh, you know, very, it was a temperate climate and you had, it was a very uh, productive land. Uh, the amount of biomass that that the land supported in these mammoth herds was enormous. So you had to have a very productive ecosystem to provide enough food for them. So it was as productive as the uh, African savannas, you know, that in uh, that we have today, uh, it was that productive, or even more productive. Wow. So well, uh, yeah, and we I... know it extended far north to the north. Much of that land is now underwater. Uh, the uh, the um, the Siberian uh, uh, continental shelf is the largest continental shelf on the planet. It's enormous. So the ocean wow. has encroached over much that land today. <clears throat> and this explains why they found so many mammoth bones there on those islands. And I'm sure if we looked under the uh, under the water there, if we looked down to the continental shelf, you know, 50 feet or 100 feet under, you would find many, many more uh, mammoth remains there. In fact, there was an ancient forest that would that would also be come to light. In fact, this is one of the ways we can prove that Hapgood was correct. If an expedition went up there and looked under that uh, Arctic Sea to the continental shelf, they would find evidence of that ancient forest. So there's no way the wow. scientists can explain how an ancient forest could have been north of the tundra, of the present tundra, see. So that's, that's so the reason, exciting. because the crust of the earth moved. Yeah, but, you know, when you stop and think about what it was, must have been like to be present when literally you're moved a thousand miles in or even more two thousand miles as much as two thousand yeah. miles uh, in a in a period of twenty four hours that would that would have been 
it was cataclysmic. Well, yeah, are, these, must have been cataclysmic. Um, are these what would have been described as mass extinctions? Well, it could have been a local extinction, but I don't think it, uh, you know, it might not have been a, a, uh, a mass extinction. Uh, there's a lot we still don't know and a lot of questions, you know, about how this happened. And, and uh, so, uh, but I do reject the theory that humans caused the extinctions of the mammoth by hunting them, you know. Uh, <laughs> they call it police yeah. scene overkill. But that might have happened in England, you know, after the... Um, Crust moved and the water, the oceans rose, and you had a, a population of mammoths that were trapped on, on England, in, on, on, on Great Britain. <clears throat> there might have been humans that hunted them to extinction on that, in that area, but uh, humans coexisted with these mammoth herds for hundreds of thousands of <laughs> probably hundreds of thousands of years, did not cause an extinction. So, no, I... They were. They must have been very formidable to try to hunt. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, let's, let's with the figure tools out, they you had, know, you know, the weapons they had were I, primitive. So, I was going to say they have what spears, and that was about right. it. If you go back 120,000 years, probably that much more than that. Um, <clears throat> I think I would have gone for vegetarianism. Um, but but it, I think what what blows me away is that that you've been able to tie in all of these um, all of these spiritual sites, these Stonehenge and, and you know all of the temple sites, which which then scatters them over time as opposed to gathering them all into one particular time frame. So you know you get an idea as to you know, what must the culture have been like that created these massive, massive edifices back 100,000 years? I mean, I don't know. that. I, I don't think they've actually dated Gobekli Tepli yet, but um, I'm, I'm sure it's quite far back there, too. So, I think it's about 11,000 before present, around 11,000, 11, 12,000 in that time frame. That's a baby. So. Yeah, they should, you know, people talk about Gobekli Tepe like it's that really very, very old. But <clears throat> given the timeline we have with based on the uh, data from the Bone Caves, it's not that old. <laughs> you know, we no. have, uh, the, the sites in Peru are much older, if uh, Carlotta's correct. So those sites would well, date back over 100,000 years. So that's that's getting back well, there. Well, that, that makes sense. That's why I was saying I don't think South America has ever been under ice. So, so the um, the groundwork there, you know, has never been not able to be be worked with. And I I don't know if it was Carlotta's book or if it was has to have been Carlotta's book. Um, <clears throat> how how he looked at the different the different ways of utilizing the stone and and makes a very good case for there there are different ways of of according to the centuries as to how things were built, and therefore you can see that a lot of the places that are there now have been built on top of other structures, on top of other structures, on top of other structures, which makes perfect sense to me. Well, right, and if you go to anyone who's been to Egypt to visit the ancient sites there, you can find evidence of that in Egypt. Uh, when I was there, I got a good photo of the Temple of Dendera, the foundation. You can see it was built upon another temple underneath it. 
<clears throat> so this must have been done again and again and again. And there are sites like, for example, the Parthenon. I bet if we could get down underneath it, you'd find that there were multiple uh, constructions there because that, that is aligned with the uh, North Greenland pole position, which dates back to about 100, 90 to 100,000 years ago. So that uh, wow. there was, this tells us this tells me that that Greek civilization goes way back, a lot older than people think, much older than people think. It's fascinating, and it explains a lot. I mean, you know, when you go back in, in, into um, whatever records we have, there are no records as, as to how the pyramids were built, which su- suggests that our records are not as old as the pyramids themselves. Absolutely. And so the records we do have from ancient Egypt, I believe that is a legacy from an earlier <clears throat> civilization, the one that actually built the pyramids. I think it's their oh, older absolutely. than I think that Great Pyramid was built after the last crustal displacement event, which I have not been able to date. We still don't know the date, but it was at the end of the Ice Age. Uh, you know, the last glacial maximum, put it that way. At the end of the last yeah. glacial maximum, we don't have a date for it yet. But it must have been, you know, it part, one of the functions of that Great Pyramid was as a, uh, a geodetic marker in the same way that the Pyramid of, of the Sun at, uh, Mex- outside of Mexico City there, Teotihuacan, was also a similar iso- uh, iso- uh, geodetic marker in its day aligned to the current then current pole position in Hudson Bay. So this process has been repeated in over eons of time. And we, we know of five ages of man, and they correlate with these different uh, North Pole positions. Uh, and, and they, so human history is a lot older. And they did it with such accuracy, you wonder, did they have a compass? I mean, well, yeah, they they must have had something better than a compass, even. You know, it had to be much better than that. Well, yeah. And so, where did where did it go? I mean, you're talking a hundred thousand years, and they were aligning their temples to true north when they're, you know, of course, with before a lot of these other changes. <clears throat> um, just just curious here, the different changes. Did they move the crust about the same amount of time and space, or were were there some that were moving greater distance than others? That's a good question. Um, The last movement uh, from the Hudson Bay to the current pole was around 2,100 miles, so it's that's a long way. Yeah, Uh, I think some of them. I, I could I could go back and check the map. You know, we can get a measurement on these to to give you a empirical answer there but i haven't done that but we could it wouldn't be that hard uh, because our this mapping software we have now the google earth pro allows us to measure uh, very accurately on the earth's surface well if so indeed we could do it that. is but it, i think it varied it depended on the the amount of force <clears throat> that hit the earth the amount of force that came to bear on the crust and, you know, we've been discussing this and what causes this and, you know, the mechanism and so on. <clears throat> we still don't know the details. Uh, Carlotto thinks that there was – he has a different hypothesis than McCanny. Uh <clears throat> He thinks it was a magnetic shift, a shift of the Earth's magnetic uh, 
poles, uh, the magnetic, put it, a, of, what, let me just restart over again. He thinks it was a magnetic reversal that caused it. But oh, okay. he thinks it was a, a near uh, encounter with a, a large comet. It would have to be a planetary-sized comet to do it. But McCanny thinks that the crust just sits upon the, the layer underneath and that all it takes is a force large enough to make it slip across there. Where some people think that, that the layers are actually kind of locked together and that it takes some other kind of uh, a decoupling type process to make them decouple and then have it shift. So we don't really know, but I, I, I lean with McCanny on this. Yeah, and I, 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 I discussed his model in the in the last few chapters of the book, which you read. Yeah, no, it's just to me, it it feels like, um, I think the theory. I think it's more than a theory; it's it's an actuality. But you know, I'm curious as to because there there are some the, some of the Indian traditions, the Native American, the indigenous peoples, <clears throat> they're. Um, their history will talk about when the stars went upside down or the earth went upside down or, you know, it's, it's, it goes back in their mythology and their cosmology as well, that the sky changed. And that's right. That's right. There was a a Greek poet named Hesiod. You probably heard of Hesiod, right? Yeah. Hesiod. He talked about the five ages of man. Somehow this knowledge was passed down to the Greeks. He, he picked up on it. And uh, so that correlates with five different pole positions, five ages of men. Well, you know, and also the Egyptian priest that was talking to Solon um, and showing him how old, you know, the pyramids were and the priesthood and everything, he, he basically, I don't think he gave a number of times of change, but he inferred that, that, that humans were far older on the planet than anybody knew or, or would ever conceive of. So it, it does make you wonder, were we, see, this is, I don't think we came from apes. So I, I, I feel like, I, I think human humanoids have been here for a very, very long time, but I don't think they evolved here. I think they came here as, as homo sapiens. And and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out where did they go? Where is the rec- uh, aside from the bone record and the core samples and and the um, mollusks? How do I mean? Where was the? I know the Denovian Denosian. Um, I can't remember Denisovian? how far back. Yeah, Dennis, thank you. Yeah, Denisovian. That's not my time. Yeah. That's not a subject that I'm. Uh, I have, you know, I don't have expertise in that area, but I, I've heard of oh. people talking about it. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> they have us going back quite far, but but according to these to these records and the temples and and whatever that that are are theoretically um, attached to the, the Bering Sea pole then somebody had to be here who was highly technically oriented and well, let's there, talk, there yeah, no... you were, let, that's right you it had to be they had to be very advanced uh, to to be able to pinpoint the, the pole positions 
and align their structures very accurately to them. They had to be very advanced. You're right. Absolutely. Well, and then you talk about the Nazca lines. Now, the, the Nazca connection is something that I hadn't seen or heard of before. That fascinated me. Yes, and this is very powerful because we have Nazca lines. Now, for, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Nazca lines, but <clears throat> there's an area down in Peru around a place called Nazca, and that's why they named them the Nazca lines, where you have – it's very dry, and you have these these different uh, – uh, structures, I call them structures, they're not natural. They're man-made, uh, and some of them are just lines that go for miles on the surface of the desert there, and others are geometric figures. So there's a different, different kinds of things there. They call them geoglyphs. Uh, but the ones that interested me because of our, we were discussing, you know, we're in, I've been exploring this crustal displacement issue, are the lines, because hap, uh, 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 Carlotto made a mind-boggling discovery, uh, which he presented in his first book on this, I think it was 2020. <clears throat> Two of those lines are aligned perfectly with the Bering Sea Pole position, the other one with the, Nor- uh, the Norway Sea Pole position, and, and those happen at different times, but they're spot on. I mean, they are spot on <laughs> with those pole positions. And I did, for, you know, I was inspired by what Carlotto did, and I did some research of my own on into these Nazca lines, started studying them. And, and you can do that with Google Earth Pro. That's one of the beauties of this uh, software. Uh, you can z- zoom down onto Nazca, and you can find those lines, and you can, tr- you know, check those alignments and see where they go. And I found that those other, there were other Nazca lines pointing to these other pole positions to the one at wow. the, the North Greenland and uh, the one in uh, Hudson Bay also. So that wow. means, and it can only mean, it must mean, necessarily mean, that somebody was around over that entire time frame to map out those lines. That's an extremely long period of time. That's over 100,000 years. So that tells well, us that, there was a high civilization present on this planet doing this work, this scientific work, and leaving a record right there in uh, on the surface of the Earth at Nazca of these pole positions. Well, and they cut they cut off the top of a mountain in order to do it too. I mean, it was it, you know it wasn't all leveled that way originally. It was um, terraformed, so. It does. It does make one wonder um, where they go. Where's the records? I mean, you know, it's it it it, it saddens me greatly that uh, although you know, 120,000 years is a long time to keep a record, but you know, it's usually it's usually in stone if it's kept at all. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the records are there. We just don't know how to read them. We're talking about a civilization that was very advanced and that preceded the Incas by thousands of years. I mean, you know, the Incas did not build Machu Picchu. These structures were there long before them. Uh, They never claimed, in fact, that they built them. And one of the – I went down to uh, the Peru. I was very fortunate to make a trip down there. In fact, I was fortunate to make – do three trips uh, in 2018 and 2019, one to Peru, 
Bolivia, one to Mexico, and another one to Egypt. And I was very fortunate to make to make those trips before the plan, the pandemic shut everything down. Yeah. But <clears throat> the first thing you notice in Peru, if you haven't been there, if you've been there, you know, when you're in that sacred valley, the first thing you notice are these of uh, uh, this irrigation system of steps that steps up the side of the mountains. Uh, I'm, I'm having a I'm having a senior moment here. To there's a name for what they call them, but uh, the obviously they were growing food there for a much larger population at one time than is that currently lives there. They cannot use those uh, uh, this step system to grow food now because it goes up so high. It goes. It reaches all the way up. Uh, there's a there's a high peak there uh, in in Bolivia. The step these steps go up all the way up above above the snow line. So you can't grow corn there now, but at one time you could. And at well, one time that- they were growing crops uh, for a much larger population. And if you go there now, you'll see that in the uh, around uh, Lake Titicaca and that great valley. They grow food down in the bo- on the bottomlands along the uh, the valley floors. They don't use those uh, that irrigated uh, step agricultural uh, uh, formation to grow food anymore. And this means that-, that the it means that the uh, the entire Andes lifted up by several thousand feet, probably in in one event. Isn't that to the same thing with Anger Wat, that that there were huge villages and towns around it that had irrigation and everything that was there, and and um, you know the jungle took it over because of course there there was a shift, but that that that's India. Um, what I'm talking about are the agricultural terraces. That's that that's what I'm. Yeah. That's the word I could the terracing. Now, I've never been to Angkor Wat, and I believe it's a low elevation, not very high up. And I think that dates to the uh, – I think it's fairly recent, but uh, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, I, you know, haven't been there and so on, so I don't really want to get into it too deep. No, gotcha. No, I, I, don't, I can't yeah. tell you what, what the uh, date is on it either. I know it's old, but um, – <clears throat> So now I'm I'm going to have to make myself a chart, and I'm probably going to go to Mark's book for it or, or yours. Um, and, and I think I think when I spoke with him last, I said I would like to have overlays of the different time frames that that you could you know slap down and show these were here during uh, the Bering Sea pole shift, and then on top of that, you know the the North Greenland, and so that you could see that they. They all weren't done at the same time. There were probably thousands of years difference. So that, that's right, so that, and so it's important. I think it's important for people to understand that these advanced civilizations have been around and have coexisted with simpler uh, uh, cultures, you know, uh, Aboriginal cultures and uh, 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 more primitive cultures, right. side by side. And this has been going on for uh, over a hundred thousand years and, and more. I, I think you know there's yeah, got to be absolutely. even even more, and you know my fascination 
now is uh, has shifted to um, what happened before the Ice Age. You know, what was the civilization like then and what has come forward in time? And, you know, if something happened today and there was a shift of over a 1,000 miles and what the only thing I can think of that would survive for a 1,000 years is Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure Rushmore would survive. Uh, uh, yeah, that would survive. But- the great the pyramids would survive. They'd be they'd be pointed and they'd be aligned to a, a you know they would not be aligned to the current new pole though. No, but I, and I don't think Rushmore's aligned to anything either. But but when you stop and think about it, um, the only thing that would survive would be Mount Rushmore and a, and a hundred thousand years from now. I mean, imagine what they would think. You know, were they gods? Well, you know, I mean, it's sort of like. You can't. You, you you don't know how to leave a message that no, these were just famous men of our time, and you know they're just. You kind of want to preserve history, and that's that's why I think the um, the ice cores were so fascinating, because they really do tell you about thousands of years. I mean, I forget how far back an ice core could go, but they had one that was almost <clears throat> a mile long. Well, there's different ones. You know, there's uh, uh, this is something that Carlotto's looking at. He's looking at the uh, uh, Antarctica, and there are two cores down there that are the longest ones on the planet. There's one at, at Vostok, that's the uh, uh, the Russian base, and there's a lake there way deep under the ice too. But they're, they've dug, they have drilled cores there, and it's 3,600 feet down to to the bottom to the to solid bedrock. And the other core is uh, at a place called, uh, um, what's the name of it? Oh, uh, Sea Dome, Dome Sea, that's the name of it. It's also in a similar, it's not too far from Vostok, and it's thirty about 3,300 meters down. So it's not quite as deep. I don't think they've got the, the dating worked out yet because the, the longer core at Vostok Supposedly only goes back 400,000 years, whereas the one at Dome C, which is shorter, uh, only 3,300 meters, goes back 800,000 years, twice as far back. So I, I think they're still trying to work out the – to get the dating down. Uh, they're still working on that. But they're very, very they, deep they, and very are old. They able, now, are they able to determine when um, the South Pole was free of ice? From a core sample? Well, this is the thing. You mean the current South Pole? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, we talked about this last week. I, I mean, I sit in on a chat group with uh, Carlotto, and he's um, he's really good using the map, the maps, generating these maps, you know, to uh, help us visualize what we're what we're talking about. And if you look at Antarctica, the continent of Antarctica, he, what he did was he superimposed on that map the Arctic Circle for each one of the five pole positions. Ah. And there's a, there's a common polygon, you know, that is, that, is, that is present for all of them, all five. It just so happens that is the oldest ice in Antarctica, 
Uh, and I believe that's where these, I haven't been able to confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that's where these two ice core, deep ice cores that I, that I was just mentioning were drilled. And uh, that's the oldest ice. So that is the area that has been under ice the longest time. So it makes sense, right? Yeah. Okay, if you look, if you do the same thing for the Arctic and you superimpose the Arctic Circle for each one of the five pole positions, it turns out that the common area in all of them is, guess what? It's Greenland. It's the main body of Greenland falls in that common area. So that explains why there was, there's, uh, a, you know, why Greenland is, was covered with ice. And uh, it's interesting that Hapgood actually suggested this in his first book, but he did not know about all five of the pole positions. He knew about the one in Hudson Bay, and he knew the current pole, and he knew about one over in the uh, Norway Sea, although his position was a little different than uh, than uh, Carlotto's. But he had the general idea right. And so he had Greenland in the middle with pole position, north pole positions on three sides. So he correctly drew the conclusion that explains why there's an ice, an ice, an ice cap there. Wow. Pretty cool, huh? It's pretty cool. It's Oh, yes, it's very cool. <laughs> it makes and, and a it lot does. of sense when you think about it. It does, and yet, and yet, you know, I, I mean, first of all, there's no way of, of arguing with any of this because it's right there in front of you. What What is the um, reluctance of academia to confirm it and, and start to teach it? Because, I mean, it, it seems uh, the answer, to me... The answer is the same. Look, the, the answer is the same reluctance that... Darwin had back in the 1840s or 1850s, you know, it's just the assumptions that they're working with. They're, they're limited by their own belief system and their inability to examine their assumptions, to take a second look at their, you know, at their assumption, assumptions, because the assumptions are incorrect. <laughs> but, but these, these academia, these people, are supposedly intelligent. I mean, why would you preserve something that's antiquated and not true? Well, because we uh, scientists are just human, like everybody else, and they're they are limited by their own uh, beliefs. If a belief system is limiting you, then you're going to be limited in what you can think. You won't be able to think outside the box. So that's the problem, in a nutshell. Well, I think. I think also there's the publisher parish thing, and you know, God forbid they're wrong, then they lose their credentials. So, and a lot of these scientists they stare at a computer screen all day long, and they they think they're looking at reality. They're looking at a model, <laughs> and these models are incorrect. Okay, these computer models about climate, for example, they are all incorrect because climate is so complicated. <laughs> We haven't been able to figure out how to model it accurately so far. So, you know, we just have to keep improving the model. But this doesn't always happen. Well, true. But and you know, they're they're trying to uh, manipulate um, the weather too, and that's that's going to be, you know, another disaster if they go too far with it. I think I think the Earth does just fine all by itself, and they should leave it alone. But um, that's just me. Right. 
I just, they're causing a lot of problems I, with the uh, this geoengineering that, that people don't even know it's happening. That they've done this uh, without telling us. It's been uh, kind of in the black realm. Yeah, well, that's that's what happens when when I I hate to say it, little boys get too powerful. Um, they're little girls too. I mean, it's not just boys, but you know, you kind of you look at all of this material and you think. Now, now, where is it that we have that that seed bank? That's in the Arc. Um, in is it in the Arctic that there's that seed bank? That, that, yeah, it's up at Spitsbergen. Yeah. I've been there. Really? I yes, I had. I was married to a sea captain once, and we had to. Our honeymoon had to be someplace he'd never been, which made it an unusual honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. So you, you had to take some pre warm clothes, huh? Yeah, oh God. It was cold. And uh yeah, I've crossed the Arctic Circle actually. Um Cool. That's very cool. It was cold. It was not cool. <laughs> yeah, no it was. But Well I've been in Alaska before. I was uh my father was in the Air Force, so we were in Anchorage and uh at the air base there and so I've seen you know the late night sun and the uh, and the oh, yeah. darkness during the, during the winter. I'm I'm familiar with that. I I think I think that and and the uh, northern lights um, are so magnificent. It's unbelievable. But um, it it just you know, I think there's so much about the planet that is that is just magical, and people don't don't seem to be looking into what we have here. They're looking at into, you know, taking us away from the natural part of our our lives, which is which is very sad. But I I think that what you've got here is is just such an amazing presentation. I I'd, I'd love to see some schools. You know, I, I would love to see some schools. It should be a textbook. Yeah, I agree. It should, it should be a textbook for natural history. Yeah. I mean, you can you can link the time frames so accurately with with the bones and the mollusks and and you know the 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 lines. Um, I I, don't, I can't see how anybody could argue with it and and you know say oh no this is just you know an assumption and you're crazy. Well, they could do it, but it wouldn't make any sense to me. Um, and and I found that that when you were talking about the uh, the the uh, caves in Britain where where all of the bones were intermingled, I mean they were they were identifying the time frames so well by 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 um, the species of animals that were on each level that couldn't possibly have been in other levels if if the if the um, ecology was the same as it was today so that you know they were and and it seems to me that rhinoceroses and and hippopotamuses seem to actually hippopotamuses especially because because they don't travel they are not um a a migrating animal at all that's right that's right when they first uh they first made this discovery they did not understand the strata you know stratification uh approach that's used in paleontology you know identifying the different strata and they they got mixed up and they they thought they found uh, the hippo bones and they also found the bones of things like um, 
uh, uh, brown bears, black bears, and uh, and uh, northern species, and they couldn't understand why the two were together, and they thought maybe they were migrating that that the different that the species were migrating, but that theory didn't hold up. No, no, there was I no migration. You can't because hippos don't migrate for one reason. <laughs> no. <laughs> But they they are definitely more indigenous a lot further south, so so that would you know when you stop and think, um, and, and people should should you know get Google Earth and try tipping it so that you can see the difference it makes um, in all the countries as to the kind of climate they would pro- possibly have, and each of these stages, each of these time frames. We're, we're, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100,000 years. So, um, you know, it, it was, the pole was where it was for a very long period of time, enough so that, that the, uh, the flora and the fauna of the particular areas could grow up and be, you know, forests and whatever, as opposed to um, what they are today. And certainly even the Gobi Desert used to be a very lush environment. Well, let me just run through the different <clears throat> climates that England had since we're talking about this. Uh, we have five different uh, pole positions, five different stratigraphic uh-huh. layers. The oldest was uh, uh, when the pole was in the Bering Sea, the North Pole in the Bering Sea, meant that England was down at the, uh, in the subtropics. And then the next age of, uh, that happened, with the pole, there was a pole shift, and, you, and England enjoyed a temperate climate. And during this period of time, you had uh, <clears throat> falling uh, sea levels, and you had actually had mammoths living in England. There was a, a, a land bridge there between England and, the, and Europe. So you had mammoths in, in England, and this went on for quite a long time. Then there was another pole shift, uh, and, uh, and I should have mentioned that that pole, that pole, when England had the temperate climate, the pole, North Pole, was in North uh, Greenland at that time. And then you had another pole shift, <clears throat> and England uh, was under a frigid uh, ice age conditions, <clears throat> and the pole at that time was in the Norway Sea. And uh, we have the, 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 fall of the mollusks from that period reflect the fact that you had very northerly species, like the Arctic fox and so on. Huh? And then you have the next... Uh, period was a temperate climate and the north pole at that time in that period was in the hudson bay and you know, once again you had uh and during the uh, during the uh, and i should have mentioned that when the uh europe was having the ice age <clears throat> you had high sea levels at that time uh, so your uh, england was actually isolated from the from england uh from the continent of europe and then in the next period again another temperate period and you had again falling seas and you had mammoths again in uh, England and this during this latest uh, temperate period which correlates with the ice cap over North America you had a mammoth step that extended from England all the way across uh, Scandinavia all the way across Central Asia and all the way to China and you had this enormous in Siberia this enormous step habitat ecosystem and you had this amazing uh, 
a megafauna uh, 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 bestiary, you know, that included the different kinds of mammoths, and you had the uh, the great bison that were, you know, much larger than the than the bison that inhabited the uh, that inhabits North America today. Uh, but it's the same species, evidently, same species, and other species that have gone extinct. So it was a it was a just an enormous uh, ecosystem, incredible, uh, must have been incredible, really. Did, did I know that there was one period of time where there was an ice? Um, the ice went as far as Columbus, Ohio, in the United States. Right. I'm not uh, sure. and, well, I think you're talking about a uh, the uh, penultimate uh, ice age, which occurred 150,000 years ago when you had ice extending all the way down into the Missouri region. Wow. The last ice cap during the last glacial maximum, you had ice all the way down to Indianapolis and Des Moines, Iowa. Those were the two easily visual, you know, places people can relate to, uh, which gives them an idea about how far south it went. Do we have Ooh. mastodons and stuff like that in this country? Because I, I, I don't think so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Know? But they were down, and you had them in uh, – down in New, uh, New Mexico and Arizona and all the way down into uh, Mexico City and in, in central Mexico. Wow. And Alaska, yeah, too, at that point, was ice-free. You know, there were parts of Alaska that were ice-free. And all of Siberia was mostly ice-free, all, almost entirely ice-free at that point. So, the, in fact, I said China. I, I said it came from England all the way across Asia to China, but it also extended into parts of Alaska, across the uh, the, the Bering's, uh, there was a uh, land bridge across the Bering Sea. Then, yeah. Well, I mean, right. there there have been there have been times when, um, <clears throat> and again, this is not taught in school. And as an no. ex school teacher, I I just you know it it kills me that so much fascinating stuff is now becoming available that could make learning so much more enjoyable for kids and they're not they're not including it in in their um in the, in their lesson plans and stuff like that it's just to me this is fascinating this would make it more interesting for kids to grab on to the earth that we, we live on and the things that can happen and that there is a uh, a crust that, that that we rest on that can under the great circumstances, shift us a thousand to two thousand miles in another direction. Now that's and some of these kids, you know, these, these kids are are very smart. They can pick this, pick up on this quickly. <clears throat> if they had a Google Earth Pro uh, mapping uh, software on their uh, school computer, they could just start working with this right now. You know. I think the other thing that was interesting was that at one time there were a, a, there are not where are, a series of at least seven active volcanoes around um, Antarctica that um, have been activated or have always been active, I'm not sure which, that is helping the ice to melt. Apparently it's warm enough underneath that uh, there actually is a little bit of melting going on down underneath because there is heat down there from the uh, volcanic uh, magma down there. Yeah. 
No, there's so much that's so yeah. cool that's going on. I mean, and look at the illusion. Of, yeah, I'd love to visit down there. I'd love to make uh, make a trip down there. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> How about the illusions? They've got strings of volcanoes there. And, and there too. Um, yeah. The planet takes care of itself if you leave it alone. But um, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't know why people can't leave it alone, but they can't. <clears throat> but, you know, all of this is is so illuminating. And I kind of, you know, the the, the Indians have talked about the sky wobbling or, the, you know, the stars wobbling. So I, it feels like something has gone on. Have we recently had some sort of something screw with our magnetism or something that went by us? Because it feels to me as though there is definitely a shift in the energy of the planet. And I, you know, I, I haven't heard of any close encounters with, with comets or anything like that lately. And yet um, it, it seems like there has been a change of some sort. They say the magnetic, um, uh, the Earth's magnetic field is diminishing <clears throat> in strength, <clears throat> and some people think that we're headed for a, uh, that we're due for one of these reversal events uh, in the next twenty, thirty years. Uh, so uh-huh. that's possible. I mean, I, I, I don't have any information that says it can't, it ha- can't happen or won't happen. So yeah, it's possible. I didn't really well, look at the geomagnetic reversal issues. I was focusing more on the crustal issue. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I can understand why. But but the <clears throat> the poles have shifted over t- over time. You mean the ge- so the magnetic pole? Yes. Right. Yes. Absolutely. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if that figures into any of this as well. But but certainly well, not must, not. Yeah, I mean, it must somehow. I don't understand it, though. Uh, we're still, you know, we're still a lot of things. We we got more questions than answers at this point. Well, yeah. But you've got a lot of answers now that you didn't have in, about 20 years ago, for sure. I have to tell you, and this book it... was a lot of fun to write. I, I It was just a lot of fun to do this. Uh, I love it. I mean, it, it you know, it's just so exciting, the material. So I love talking about it. Well, it you know it is fascinating. Um, so, is it just the outer crust, <clears throat> just the outer crust that moves, or are there other levels that move as well? Do you think? Well, that's a good question. Uh, again, we don't know. Uh, we don't really know yet. But the evidence indicates to me that the that the the, the there is a layer where the shift the slippage occurs. I think it's fairly deep down because we have, if you look at the, um, for example, I'll give you an example, the Hawaiian islands. And um, those islands have been around for a very long time. And they, the island chain actually goes, extends for a long distance up to the northwest. I think Midway Island is even part of that chain. I'd have to double check the map mm-hmm. again. But uh, so, you had the crust move, and yet you you still have this line of islands forming from uh, volcanic events. 
So that tells you that the the slippage occurs at a deeper level than that. So it must be pretty, pretty deep. Yeah, I, That's I was going to say, how, how deep are you thinking? A mile, two miles, something like that? No, it would be deeper than a mile, but I don't know how deep. I think okay. the outer lithosphere is around 20, either 20 miles or 20 kilometers. So it would be lower, deeper than that, but I don't know by how much. Ah, I was wondering because of all the drilling and stuff that's been going on, if if there were a shift, would it affect the, that drilling? And probably not. Probably not. I don't think they're going down that deep enough to, to have any effect on this type of, of activity. Would be interesting. I mean, you know, now you want us to hang around to see the next shift. And, you know, of course, that could be, you know, a long time. As far as, if, as far as you know, people saying, you know, oh, there's change coming, and uh, 17,000 years was one, one uh, estimate that somebody threw out there that it would be 17,000 years before there was another mass extinction or, or something like that. But um, this, this comes close to a mass extinction. It does explain why places like Derinkuyu and, and other uh, other places that have tunnels underground um, are around. It doesn't, of course, they didn't leave any explanation as to why they did them, but it makes perfect sense. If suddenly um, there was some sort of activity like this, the people had to go somewhere to protect themselves. But um, it's it's just it's amazing information, and it, it makes perfect sense that we we are a lot older than, than we've been told. And, you know, you go you use the Bible, and it only goes back 6,000 years, I think. Um, the, nothing happened before then, and then in 6,000 years, everything happened, um, <clears throat> which makes it not a great history book right at the moment. But, you know, it does, it it's does a, it's open up. It's a very up. difficult, the Bible is very, I, I believe it is a very difficult book to properly interpret, because there are elements of history and there is uh, sacred uh, writing, you know, scriptural, uh, spiritual material, and then there is a lot of other cultural, political stuff even in there. So it, it makes it difficult oh, yeah. to interpret. But uh, I, I think, I can't help but believe that there is, we're going to come across the Hall of Records that Edgar Casey talked about, at some yeah. point, I think there's got to be a buried rec- a hall of records somewhere, uh, and we're gonna—that's gonna be mind-boggling when we find it. But uh, you know, things are changing fast right now. I think people are waking up. <clears throat> Not a good time to be an archaeologist with so much coming to light, where everything is is now put in question, and with proof showing that. There's greater antiquity here. I mean, look at all of the out-of-place um, objects that, that have been found with um, small computers that go that predate the Greeks. So, uh, you know, there, there's clearly there have been intelligent beings on this planet that are no longer here. But and and that's the other thing. Where'd they go? I mean. These, these yes, this is, the, this is the question that keeps nagging at me and, and, and all of the people who are doing this, you know, research. What happened to them and 
the answer that I come up with is the answer that uh, uh, that woman, uh, what was her name? Om Seti, a woman who uh, yeah. lived at Abydos. Did you, you know the story about Om Seti? Is this the one that, that could walk around and, and read the hieroglyphs and tell the story of everything? Well, she, just before she died, she authored a book about the temple of Seti I and Abydos. And uh, there's a commentary on, I believe, every single mural in that entire uh, temple in her book. That's what, it, that's what the book's about. So she was the leading, the world expert on that temple by the time she died in 19, I think it was in 1983 or 82. And uh, she, she believed that, and she states this in her book, that when they went to expand that temple in 1200 B.C. or 1300 B.C., when Seti, the, the, the pharaoh, uh, decided to expand the temple, and they had rules for doing this. And according to the rules of temple construction, they would have extended it out to the west end. When they did that, when they started to do that, they discovered this other thing down at 40 feet down under the sand that we now call the Osirion, which I believe is one of the most incredible sites on the planet. And who knows how old it is uh, with them, these megalithic uh, slabs and this I, I to me it's just it's just utterly mind boggling and uh it's gotta be in the top ten uh, sites on the planet. I put it right up there the second or third, you know, after Giza uh-huh. and the Great Pyramid. But um they didn't even know it was there, according to Homesetti. She didn't think she she believed that they just they rediscovered it in thirteen hundred BC. And it had been much, much older, and it was a high civilization. They were able to move these gigantic megalithic slabs, uh, 300, 500-ton blocks, <laughs> which Teddy the first couldn't do. So, you know, the, the civilization in 1300 B.C. was not near as advanced. <clears throat> well, isn't, you know, I think Carlotta's recent book, I think, what is it, Beyond?, Beyond Atlantis. Yes, my, very amazing yeah. book. Yeah, <laughs> it's it. Did you send your copy? No, I bought. I buy the books. I buy all the books because you know authors got to eat. So right. um, no, no, I I buy the books, and uh, I I found that that you know just the fact that that. I mean, you can't even call them ancient because they're beyond ancient, whatever that is. And they're just hidden in the mists of time. And they're so fascinating because they had to be so highly advanced. They had to be able to, I mean, every every site out there has um, an observatory so that, so that they were watching the stars and they were, they were, doing they were they were connected to astronomy and they were be able to they were able to predict um eclipses and they were able to predict so much else that that their knowledge was was amazing oh you 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 talked about um the great pyramid but not about um stonehenge and the purpose oh, of yeah. stonehenge yes okay well i do present a uh 
a hypothesis for what that was, and uh, uh-huh. I have to give I have to give some credit to the scientist Jim McKenney. Uh He helped with this. He believed that. Uh, in fact, he has a pamphlet out, and I mentioned this in my book uh, that uh, people can use if we ever get in a situation where we have a crustal displacement. We you you're going to need to re. Uh, uh, calibrate the calendar. You're going to have to figure out where you are, so you're going to you're going to need to know when to plant seeds so, so that you can grow yeah. food. Otherwise, you may starve to death. And he thinks this is what Stonehenge was originally, and I think you might be right. Probably originally had st- uh, wooden piers, not stone. The stone came much later. Probably yeah. they were using uh, these wooden a circle with these wooden hinges to you know, determine the solstices, and then if you figure out the solstice, which is a lot easier, you can you can easily figure, uh, if you know the solstice, you just divide that angle in two and you figure out the equinox. And that would give you, uh, you know, tell you the start of spring. Well, so yeah. You know but, plant, I mean, you've got to know when to plant your on, seeds. Well, and depending on where you are, that I mean, I think that's the one thing that farmers, I'm I'm in Nashville and I'm in the middle of farm country and they're having trouble figuring out when to plant their crops um, because the seasons have changed so radically. So, uh, I mean, we're having that problem now. And um, I think it's something that that is, I I think you're right. I agree with you on the purpose of Stonehenge. It was, it was more of a, calendar than anything else i mean every there are there are opinions on everything from um a healing center to a graveyard to you know you name it they've they've designated it and there's no way to prove exactly what it was but um that would make sense because the heelstone and everything um should align and and that would give you a planting season, but it would depend on on what the um, on what the weather was like wherever you are. I mean, if if there's a two thousand mile shift, that's going to change a lot. And 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 that's crops right. It depends too. on where you're located. Everything depends on where you are in relation to the uh, the maximum uh, movement, you know, of the crust. So if you're, <clears throat> for example. Um, we know, we know. Uh, archaeologists have found uh, evidence of that humans were living in Siberia forty thousand years ago. There were cultures up there. You know, it was well, uh, I guess, habit. You know, uh, developed. Uh, there were there were human societies up there, but I don't think they survived the last crustal displacement uh, uh, because the maximum, the line of maximum force. Uh, what we call Hapgood called the the meridian of maximum displacement came right down through there. So they suffered the full, uh, uh, you know, 2,000 mile movement, and they went from were uh, temperate uh, to frigid in one day. They probably didn't make it. You know, they, that would have been hard to survive. That I would think not. I mean, knowing. If you're moving that fast, 
you're, I mean, probably, I mean, no building would survive, and I wouldn't think any person would survive either. Well, even if they were living, say they were were, uh, hunters and gatherers, you know, living in teepees or some kind of uh, uh, tent-like structures or or maybe primitive housing, uh, uh, they, even then, they wouldn't have been able to make it probably because it would have been, uh, the drastic climatic shift would have been, inst- you know, immediate. Yeah, that's, well, you know, we've also had, though, um, some pretty hefty um, comet strikes. I mean, the one by the, in, in the Yucatan was, was huge, and that created uh, tsunamis and stuff like that. So, you know, those those kind of things do happen as well. You know, it, it's funny. We look at the moon and there are pockmarks all over it because it's been hit by comets and stuff. And you and you don't see um, you don't see the same thing with Earth, but it happens on Earth as well. It's just that we don't see the actual marks because you know they're either underwater or by water or in places where um, people actually don't see them. But when you stop and think about it, uh, you have a lot King of weathering. Cut- you know. The uh, the marks that they leave, these events leave, get weathered away eventually, so they they disappear. Oh yeah, and I mean, look at King Tut's, you know, his favorite knife that was buried with him was a comet. It was you know a comet that had been worked into a knife. So um, they they have they have you know we we've known about comets for thousands of years, and and. Uh, Comets have been used as, as sacred stones and things like that, but they have they have hit the planet pretty hard a number of times. So um, yeah, I'm sure that's I mean, true. I mean, we talk about that in the book. Yeah, but you know, you do begin to wonder um, what is the you know how big a an electric electromagnetic pulse or whatever a planet-sized comet goes by, wouldn't that pull us off, off our axis or off our, or out of our um, um, rotation around, around um, the it, sun? Yes, you could have other effects, too, like that. Uh, you could ch- change the, uh, the angle, uh, you know, of the, uh, <clears throat> that the earth, of the, earth uh, the, the uh, axis of the Earth could shift, could change, the angle can change. And if uh-huh. that happened, uh, you would have changes to the seasons. You know, you could have either it would affect uh, it would affect the seasons, and or you could have a, a the Earth could slow down, which would affect the, the length of the day. So, or you know, the the orbit could be moved, and that would change the the, uh, the rotation around the sun. You know, that would change the length of the year. So these things can also happen. This depends I mean, on change, the, yeah, it just depends on how change, large that comet is, how large and how our, close it comes. But if it changed our orbit, wouldn't that take us out of orbit around the sun? Well, I'm sure our orbit has been changed a number of times. Uh, uh, some people think that uh, that we are just just barely within the habitable zone at this point. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if there has been change to that. 
more than once. Well, and they're they're saying they're saying also that that the moon is moving away from the Earth at you know a slow pace, but it it is moving away from the Earth, and if it if it does go out of orbit, what does that do to you know our seas and everything like that? Because it does it does affect our highs and lows highs and things like that. Do we need the moon? I wonder. I think we really need it. Yeah, I think we do need it. And uh, some people think that it's not natural, you know, that it was put there by somebody. <laughs> well, it rang when we dropped a, a space probe on it. So you probably had this conversation before with somebody, huh? About well, the with with the moon? Well, yeah, there a lot of people have different opinions. Um and <clears throat> I can't dispute any of them. They all sound fascinating, but it, it does it does feel as though originally I was taught that it was a part of Earth that had broken away. That doesn't make uh, sense. Yeah, I, I I I tend to discount those kind of uh, ideas. But then but I learned then, a lot from know, some... learned a lot from McCanny about this sort of thing. Yeah, he thinks that most of the planets uh, around the sun were captured. Uh, okay, you know that they were comets that came through and got captured, and that this this explains why they, they originally there were just two. Probably uh, uh, most star systems are are involved two stars. Yeah. Uh, and the Earth, uh, excuse me, the our solar system would have been the Sun and Jupiter. Jupiter was is large enough; it has star-like qualities. So that would have been the other one. Well, and I, I think there are. Well, you know, I think there. You know, it's it all could be right, and and I know that there there was a time long ago that there were two suns, and. The uh, the other sun was, I think, Saturn, and then it moved out of its orbit with us, and then moved to wherever it went to. But you know, and that makes sense too. I mean, there there are there are cultures that remember the time of the two suns, which I think is really cool too. You know, I think what's so amazing is that that history, real history is so much better than fiction that that it would be more exciting to teach it if people would pay attention. Because, because you know, what you've got here is just phenomenal stuff, and it makes sense. It, you know, I, 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 if I wanted to, I couldn't punch a hole in any of it. So, you know, yeah, it, it well, sort that of... That makes me feel good. I'm glad that you, uh, that I convinced you... Uh, no one has been able to punch any holes in it, I can tell you that, and I'm waiting for the science community to actually respond. They basically just, uh, you know, dodged the whole question. Uh, they've, been, they've ignored it. They regard it as pseudoscience. <laughs> but I just laugh at that, you know. I mean, I, I have not tried to go head-to-toe-to-toe to toe with anybody in the science community, but I'm perfectly willing to do it you know, any time. If they want to talk, I'm ready. Well, I mean, how can you argue with the proof that that you've got? I mean, it's it's. I mean, even Darwin had the proof; he just didn't know what to do with it. So, yeah, yeah, right. 
That's right. And that's, that, to me, is fascinating. That Again, the time frame, he just he probably couldn't take that extra step because of his reputation. And I guess I understand that. But it, it does feel as though there's there's nothing here that, that you know, could – if somebody endorsed it, that that they would lose their reputation if if you know something came came up because you've got so many different um, areas that you can validate what you've got going here. I mean the 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 one that that is the least um, I guess credible would be the 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 orientation of the different. Um, temples at different places, but but you mean the archaeological data? Yeah, yeah. They there's some scientists consider that to be soft, you know, not not hard, not empirical, more soft evidence. But I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. The fact that they line up so perfectly, you know, uh, that's oh, pretty. Yeah. That's powerful to me. But when you look at the animal bones. And and the the shells, the mollusk shells. I mean, you, there's no debating that. I mean, they can all be tested any way you want to. You're going to come up with the same dates. I mean, radiocarbon dating is is pretty good these days. Um, so so it so it's 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 sort of like. Yeah. So what's your next book? <laughs> uh, I'm still. Uh, I haven't. Uh... I, I can't talk about that. I'm still, uh, you know, uh, cogitating on that. It's still in a place that's non. Uh, I don't have words to talk about it yet, so leave it. Just leave that alone. Okay, because you know, I think you know, given material like this, I have to clump forward and challenge someone. Um, well, I, I uh, let me just. Uh, you, you know, you might, if you liked this book, you might like my book about the early Christianity. I noticed that you're, uh, you're, uh, you do spiritual things, uh, interviews, yep. that sort of thing. Well, I did a book in 2004 about uh, early Christianity, the Gnostics, based on an original source text. So that's, that might be something that you would be, find interesting. Uh, I will definitely take a look at it. Um, yeah, you can find it up yeah. on Amazon. Oh yeah, <laughs> everything's on Amazon. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think I think this show has you know one of the one of the very exciting parts about the show is you know wherever my interest takes me, I put it out there, and happily there's an audience for it. And it's it's sort of like it's my way of learning, it's my way of growing. And you know, if I if I take a couple thousand people with me. That's fine with me. Um, I've, so I've do you not, have I've any only... idea, uh, Barbara? Do you have any yeah. idea how large your audience is? Um. Well, I had um, a, a client who was in Kuala Lumpur a while back, and he was talking to a Tibetan monk, and he said to the monk that that he knew somebody that painted mandalas and had created a deck of cards from the mandalas. And the priest looked at him and said, you mean Barbara DeLong? Um, it's a pretty big audience. <laughs> oh, that's good. Great. Glad to hear so that. There's, there's um, 
I I don't know how the, there's no way to really tell because even though we have a lot of different servers, I have no way of grabbing numbers from most of them. Um, my website gets thousands of hits, so something's going on. Uh, but Good. but as far as you know, I I I would like to. I know for a fact that the show is listened to around the world because one of the places that I that I can get numbers from, um, you know, can tell me even the city that the that the listener came from. So, um, and that's huge numbers. But you know, can I say I have a million or two million or three million listeners? I don't know, but I know there are a lot of them, and. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch, you know, different areas of the country come up and, and, you know, suddenly have a flurry of people listening from. I know there are a bunch of people in Australia. Um, there are a bunch of people in China and Russia, uh, even the Ukraine. I, you know, I, I'm surprised that any computer is working there at the, these days. But um, it's all over the world. I've gotten responses and stuff from so um it's well listened to the um the youtube channel has almost 2200 subscribers which is not bad um blog talk we've passed half a million as far as listens so it's hard to say yeah they're big numbers and well and and you know it's it's I get I get lots of comments from from people all over the world, and it it it's kind it's it's nice to know that people appreciate the fact that uh, first of all there are no commercials aside from this is a good book please read it, and um, I basically you know help to present whatever author is on the show in their best light because my job is to make you look really really good. And, um, oh, okay. So it, well, I appreciate that, but I certainly don't. Uh, I certainly uh, don't uh, mind if somebody challenges me on something because that's part of the process, you know. Oh, that's a lot of fun. Um, it is. But I think I think that that um, it's a good platform to put all sorts of wonderful new theories and ideas. And my gosh, you this, yours yours isn't a theory. It's actuality. You can't argue with this. It isn't one little test or, or you know, a, a, a thought that you've run away with or anything like that. You've got concrete evidence here. I bet even Darwin would agree with you. Well, I wish I had a chance to talk to him. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I wish I, I had that opportunity. I'd love to talk to Darwin. Or, and or Einstein. That would be fun, too. Well, Einstein or Hapgood, too, for that matter. Yeah, aren't they dead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're all gone. Long gone. Well, Hopefully I happen to a be a place. medium. No, I happen to be a medium. Someday we'll have to try to connect with them. Um, okay. That would be fun. Probably. Not sure what we'd get, but it would be fun anyhow. But, but you know... You're carving a place in history for yourself, and you're car- and and I think this this book is certainly you know uh, a wonderful example of here it is you know you know 
prove me wrong. And I don't see how anybody could. So um, I give, you know, I give for the for the listeners. Uh, I want them to know. Uh, I actually propose several uh, proofs in the book. You know, things that could be uh, scientific expeditions that could be mounted to confirm Hapgood's ideas. There's several different ideas presented in the book. Well, the only person I know that has contact with underwater stuff is Charlie Pellegrino. And he was he was in the um submersible that discovered um and did all of the work on the Titanic. Oh, really? He worked on a movie. He did. Or, yeah, no, he, he worked, worked on the movie with with yeah, James he worked Cameron. On a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can put you in touch with Charlie. Well, uh, that's interesting. I'm prepared to talk to anybody. So, well, you Charlie, know, is, I don't know if he's, in, he's, is he into science. Is he into scientific research, or is he just uh, into uh, finding old wrecks? Oh no, um, he's he's actually he's into archaeology. He and he and James Cameron did um, excavated the, the tomb of Jesus. <laughs> Family tomb of Jesus, not too long ago. Um, and he has all and, the equipment. Huh? He has the ships and everything, huh? Well, he has access to them. Yeah, I, I don't think they're his ships, but and he did he did do a lot of dives um, on the Titanic. Um, he's written a lot of you know really good books. He's written a lot on the Titanic. Um, we we had an anniversary of of the Titanic sinking. I think. Last year, and Charlie had written four books, and I, I read all four of them, and I had nightmares because all I could see was sinking ships, and I told him I'm not doing that again because um, I always read the books before I do an interview. Yeah, but that he, was he, a... He's, he's written uh, that was some... scary story. It was, and, and I became so involved with the different characters that were real people that I lost my focus. Um, but he's written fiction book. He, w- he wrote a book called uh, Dust, and the premise of it was that um, all of the insects died and what happened to the planet if all of the insects died. And he wrote it quite a while ago, and then suddenly I remembered, wait a minute, the bees are dying. The, <laughs> you know, There are a lot of the insects that are going, you know, um, extinct and and his book was frightening. It was a he writes well. He's he's also done investigations of um, the Holocaust. Of of uh, he did interviews with people that had survived both um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and that's one of the best books I've ever read. So. So I can put you in touch with him. He might, you know, you might be able to put it out for him, and he might be able to do something with you as far as checking out that shelf. Yeah, fine. I'll I'll, I'll try everything, anything. You know. <clears throat> so yes, but go ahead. Now, be, feel free. I will do that. Now, where was it that that you found the um, the stumps that were fossilized? Oh, I think you're talking about uh, Siberia. I'm not. Yeah. I don't think they were fossilized. I think they were just remnants. 
the ancient forest, oh, okay. the remnants of the ancient forest is still there, you know, that, and uh, uh, you get a, a, <clears throat> something like that under salt water, it might not uh, take a long time to break down. I mean, even, even 10,000 years, you might have um, leftover uh, evidence, you know, that could persist. Because the water is very, really... very cold, so that the cold water inhi- would inhibit the uh, deterioration. You know, it 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 would be fascinating to to see what what was on that shelf. Whether whether there might even be some sort of um, um, ruins of of um, cities or whatever, too. Because well, if, if hard that's to say. Where the... I mean, we don't. It's possible. I, I'm not going to rule it out. You know that they're finding uh, uh, it's very common for fishermen to uh, find, come up with their nets and their and their uh, fishing lines to pull in um, mollusk bones and tusks and things from uh, Doggerland. You know that uh, that bank. It's like a shallow sea there between England and, and Europe, and uh, they call it Doggerland. And that was formerly uh, land at one point, and, and there are a lot of bones and things still down there on that uh, seafloor. Wow. That's interesting. I think I have somebody. Oh, yeah. Uh, Graham Phillips in July. I, he's written a book called The Mystery of Doggerland. And, cool. Um, well, you can ask him about that. I'm sure he would be. I will. Have plenty, of, lots of things to say about that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, I, I have met so many amazing people through this show that it's just, it's it's just, it's a wonderful adventure. Oh, but I can now, imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's it's. I mean, when I start to see names I recognize in other people's books, I, I sit back and chuckle. Yeah, but you do this for 14 years, and you know it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of authors. So um, yeah. you do this yeah, every one, once a week. One a week, yes, without fail. And and you know I'm so glad the pandemic is over because during the pandemic every author decided that you know they could either you know, write the one book of 300 pages or extend it to 500 pages, and a lot of people went to five and 600 pages, which <laughs> is a challenge. I think we're we're back now, so people are writing 300-page books, which are easy to get through in a week. But um, yeah, right. Not not five and eight. There there was one 800-page book that I got that I was so sick of Flint's at the end of 800 pages, I never wanted to see that word again. Um, what so, the word? Flints, how they chipped the flint, the, the arrowheads oh, and everything. Yeah, not, not, okay. it, it was not my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> so if, if people want to get a hold of you, where do they do that? And is there a website? Um, the Let's see. Uh, the best way, I think, would be to um, just let me give you my email, and I'll just you can announce it or put it up on the on your web page. Yeah. Or just you have you actually have my email, so you can just get it from my uh, the correspondence yeah. we have had. Or you, you're you're welcome to announce that over the air. Also, it's Mark H. Gaffney, 
all one word, at earthlink.net. And my name, Gaffney, is G-A-F-F-N-E-Y. Well, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to have to do this again because I think that there's probably material that we haven't gotten into that I would like to get into. And can't, I can't think of what it might be, but it just, I mean, the, 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 the moving of the crust fascinates me, and it opens up so much, you know, to um, the imagination as far as what it would be like if suddenly the Earth spinned 2,000 miles in another direction. I mean, Well, this is definitely one of the ways to... Uh one of the doorways to understand the human history, uh, and I'm talking, I mean, pre, prehistory, you know, the pre-recorded history. Yeah, and, and the fact that pre-recorded history doesn't mean that it's, it's antiquated. It, it appears that it was, civil, that they were civilizations that, that were technically speaking far and above what we have here today, because Today, we could not create the pyramids. Correct. Um, yeah. We don't have the ability to do it. No, and I still, I think sound has to come in here somehow. I know that I keep, I keep going back to the, um, the guy in Florida who did the uh, Coral Castle, and he moved all of the stones all by himself, and nobody ever saw him do it. And um, right. he used... He used no tools, really, or anything. So it, it, it sits you back, and it says, you know, okay. And, of course, then he died, and he took the secret with him because he said he had the yeah, secret. Yeah, I wonder, to, wonder why nobody actually, maybe he didn't want to share it with anybody. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, it, you know, it, it does make you wonder because, I mean, he built it for a woman that never came to marry him. And... um he lived very, oh. very. He lived very um, frugally, and um, it just—I don't know. I, I just can't imagine somebody having that kind of information and not sharing it in some way, shape, or form, and you know, giving people a, a leg up on just how was it done. I, I think it has. I think it has something to do with sound. Not positive, but I think it has something to do with sound and wavelengths, because they e- they can even they can levitate things with sound. So why not, you know, stones? Yeah, Big stones. Why not, indeed? Well, we'll see. Well, I want I want to thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure, and. Um, <laughs> You've been incredibly informative, but I want more. So, <laughs> well, thank you. It, it was fun too. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed well, it. Well, I will. I'll be in touch with you, and um, we'll get you in in here on the Christianity book for sure. And um, I'll see if I can get a hold of Charlie Pellegrino and and give you an uh, an, uh, an introduction to him. Sounds and good. You get, thank you, Robert. If you if you get to go underwater to look at something um say hello to my ancestor (laughs) (laughs) okay he's up there somewhere he is (laughs) 
Oh, I, okay, didn't they bring I will... the body back? Didn't they, I think they brought the body back. If I remember reading about it in Wikipedia, I don't know if they got their facts right. But. Yeah, they brought the body back, and he is buried in – he it may be in a, at Annapolis, or he's at Arlington that's in uh, New York. But he's definitely – yeah, his what's left of him. It, it, he was buried at the mouth of the Lena River originally, and then they did re, they sent ships and they brought him back home. Yeah, well, he's a hero. Yeah, one nobody knows about, but he is a, he is a <laughs> hero. <laughs> Someday I may do show just on him, just for the heck of it. But um, until that time. Um, I, I thank you so much. I will definitely get this up and out there um, by tomorrow, and I'll send you the um, I'll send you the link to it on YouTube. And uh, you know, we'll we'll take this information and and uh, do something with it, and then we'll get you back here with your other book. Sounds good, Barbara. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care now, and good night. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Tune in again. We will be back next week with another fascinating book and author. Uh, but check this book out because it really is worth reading, and, and it's an enjoyable read. You're going to learn a lot. Good night now. <laughs>